Uh, he would look in, in, in chambers. He demanded uh, perfection, and, and you know, and, and rightfully so. Justice Scalia was a, a gentleman, a courtly man, uh, uh, a good friend to people. Uh, there were times I would agree that uh, he was a little bit over the top, and I think some of the some of the other justices would agree. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from just outside of Boston, where I write a blog called Law Sites. Mike. Co-host Craig Williams uh, is not able to be with us today. Uh, he may be joining us later in the show uh, if his schedule permits. Uh, before we introduce today's topic, I would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Clio. Clio is the online practice management platform for lawyers. You can find out more about it at www.goclio.com. Last month, Justice Anthony Scalia died unexpectedly, sparking a huge reaction from the legal and political world. Justice Scalia was appointed to the Supreme Court by President Ronald Reagan in 1986 and is known for his conservative position and his originalist position in his court rulings. Since his death, there's been great controversy over his replacement uh, and the nomination process and what's going to happen there. But today we're going to talk more about Justice Scalia, his legacy, what he meant to the court, what he represented on the court, and then a little bit as well about the the controversy over a replacement and the impact his death will have on the future of the court. To help us do that today, we have two guests joining us. First of all, let me introduce Tony Morrow. Tony is the Supreme Court correspondent for the National Law Journal. He's covered the court for some 35 years. Over the years, Tony's also written about the First Amendment and food, reviewing restaurants for various publications. Tony lives in Alexandria, Virginia, with his wife, Kathy Cullinan, and his daughter, Emily Morrow, lives nearby in Arlington. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer, Tony Morrow. Good to be with you. And also joining us today is Kevin P. Martin. Kevin is an appellate and regulatory litigation partner and co-chair of Goodwin Proctor's Appellate Litigation Group in Boston. Kevin's practice involves high-stakes appeals and trials before federal and state courts and administrative agencies with a focus on matters presenting complex constitutional and administrative law issues, as well as questions of federal preemption. Prior to joining Goodwin Proctor, Kevin clerked for Justice Antonin Scalia on the Supreme Court and uh, also for Judge Lawrence Silverman of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Kevin Martin. Well, thanks for having me, uh, Bob. Tony, I wonder if, if we could start with you, just because you've been covering the court, if I have this year right, I think it's since 1979, when Warren Berger would have been chief justice. You've seen the court evolve over a good period of time. I wonder, from your perspective, what was Justice Scalia's role in, in shaping the court as we know it today? Well, a couple of things. But first, in terms of uh, the actual operation of the court and the way things work, Justice Scalia wrought a, a tremendous change in, in one aspect. When I first started covering the Supreme Court, oral arguments were pretty much of a sleepy affair. Only a few questions would be asked. Most of the justices asked none at all most of the time. 
And so lawyers would have free reign in sort of orating and uh, giving the justices their prepared speeches. But then Justice Scalia came on the court in uh, 1986, and everything changed. He, even as a rookie justice, he had no hesitation in uh, jumping right in and asking numerous questions, very provocative questions. Sometimes it would be pretty obvious, very obvious which side he was on. He would often tell an advocate, shouldn't your answer really be to, to, to this other justice's question, shouldn't this answer really be this instead of what you just said? He would throw lifelines out to, to advocates. Uh, I remember one time he asked a question of an advocate and uh, the lawyer paused a little too long and Justice Scalia said, Counselor, I asked you a question. You've got four choices. Yes, no, I don't know, or I'm not telling. Which is it? And uh, <laughs> I think at that point I would have fainted, uh, but but uh, the, the advocate uh, carried on. Anyway, my point is that, that he made the oral argument process a very interactive and very robust uh, experience for, for lawyers. Gradually, over time, all the other justices followed suit, so they would chime in a lot more than they used to. And now it's almost to the point of it being a, a free-for-all. Uh, justices interrupt each other. They interrupt the advocates. Um, I think it's gone a little too far, and some justices have said that. Uh, but it really was, this was, in large part, Scalia's doing, uh, the transformation of oral argument. Kevin, when when were you? Uh, in what years were you clerking at the court? Uh, so I I showed up in 2000. Uh, I was there for October term 2000, which lasted until uh, June of 2001. And and, and and Tony was exactly right about about the, the way that the atmosphere was by that point. Uh, you know, some of the some of my best memories of watching oral argument were of Justices uh, Scalia and Breyer uh, going back and forth, really just using. The, the actual uh, attorneys arguing the case almost as, as not, I want to say pawns, but, but foils as they themselves uh, argued back and forth trying to convince justices who might um, be the deciding vote. I have to wonder what it was like from the perspective uh, of the clerks. I, I read a, a quote from Brian Garner where he said, Justice Scalia is an intellectual pugilist throwing some very hard punches. Uh, so did, did the clerks get bruised at all? Uh, he would... Look, in, in, in chambers, he demanded uh, perfection, and, and you know, and, and rightfully so. Uh, he wanted to know that if you were telling him that a certain case uh, that he was relying upon as precedent stood for a certain proposition, that it did, and if uh, you, you know you put together a draft opinion that was not well supported, he would let you know it. I'm sure we've all have read a lot about the the various uh, articles. I mean, a lot's been written in in the last month about Justice Scalia and, and the legacy he left. I'd, I'd be curious to hear from each of you what what you see is uh, as his legacy on the court. Tony, how about you? Well, I think it's the most uh, profound influence he had on the court with his theory of uh, of originalism, which means that the first and often the last stop that a court or a judge should take in uh, in interpreting a statute or or a provision of the Constitution should be the actual words of the Constitution and what those words meant at the time they were written. It used to be that law judges would kind of give lip service to that notion of, of just interpreting the words of this, the statute. The force of Justice Scalia's views on 
this this issue really uh, had a tremendous impact over the years uh, to where, the, as I said, the, I think uh, most judges would, they pay more than lip service, they actually have to really look at the words. Now, it's not a, it's not a strictly, you know, a totally objective way of interpreting a statute. There are subjective ways you can do this, and uh, example is the District of Columbia versus Heller, the Second Amendment case that Justice Scalia wrote. He used the words of the Second Amendment, you know, the, the right to bear arms, uh, and uh, what that meant at the time of the framers uh, to interpret the Second Amendment as meaning that it's an individual right to bear arms. And he always portrayed this as a, the best example of originalism. But of course, Justice Stevens wrote a dissent in that same case, and he also used the words of the framers, the words of, he used an originalist approach and uh, came up with exactly the opposite interpretation. You know, you can disagree about which, who, who got it right and who got it wrong. This concept of originalism, as strong as it was and as important as it is, uh, is, is, could be, can be manipulated uh, by, by both sides. Kevin Martin, what about you? What do you see as Justice Scalia's overarching legacy? I, I think Tony's right. It is this notion of, of originalism, um, and, and not only in his own, his own jurisprudence, but in the, the other justices who now, uh, for example, Justice Alito and, and Thomas, who really have, have that same originalist textualist viewpoint, and many judges in, in the lower courts and, and professors in law schools uh, whose, whose approach to the law and legal interpretation is different than it would have been had Justice Scalia not come along and been such a, a forceful advocate for it. Um, on the subject of orig originalism in the, the Heller case, I mean, I think one, one very interesting thing to point out, as uh, Tony mentioned, uh, Justice Scalia and Justice Stevens uh, both were applying an originalist framework to the case. They came out in different places. Um, I guess Justice Scalia, and I, and I agree with him on this, would have said that that's not a result of one side or the other manipulating. It's just different people looking at the same set of historical facts and maybe drawing uh, different opinions from what, what the history shows. Uh, Justice Scalia loved that, though, because in his, in his mind, at least they were fighting on the same battlefield. They were, they were going back, pouring through the historical records and trying to answer the same question. What did the Second Amendment mean when it was adopted? Um, even if they came out in a different place, uh, in his mind, that was much better than having uh, him try to interpret the, the historical text while somebody else was off on a flight of uh, philosophical fancy, you know, imagine, you know, trying to decide not what the Second Amendment meant when it was adopted, but perhaps what it should mean today, given, uh, for example, changed uh, social mores. So, uh, you know, he, he was very happy, actually, with, with Justice Stevens's dissent. Is Heller the case that best embodies his originalist philosophy? Or, or put it another way, is that the most important opinion he authored? You know, I would, I would say, well, there, I guess there are two different questions there, right? But I, I would say the opinions that best embody his originalist philosophy would be those where if you look at his personal politics, um, his approach to constitutional interpretation led him somewhere that he might not otherwise go. Uh, he's well known, for example, for having authored many opinions upholding the rights of uh, criminal defendants, often uh, with justice, you know, a more liberal justice like Justice Breyer on the other side. Uh, because he just he, he strongly believed that the, um, the the Constitution, as originally interpreted, required that outcome, not because he particularly wanted to coddle criminals. Uh, punitive damages are another area where you know, many conservative lawyers uh, have 
um, advanced through BMW versus Gore and State Farm and other cases, limits on uh, punitive damages from, from Justice Scalia's perspective. You look at the Constitution, it says nothing about um, limits on punitive damages, and so that should be left to uh, juries. So, you know, I, I think those are the, those are the opinions where uh, his approach really um, manifested itself because it, th- those are cases that, that where he was not really influenced by his own political views. I'd agree with that. And, and, and uh, another example is, is the case that Justice Scalia actually um, said was his probably his favorite case that he wrote was uh, Crawford versus Washington, which revived the, the Confrontation Clause of the Sixth Amendment in, in a way that it did, as Kevin said, uh, uh, favor defendants in, in many instances. Uh, he basically said that uh, the prosecution can't bring evidence to, to trial in the form of uh, you know an affidavit or a, a written report from a lab technician or something. The, the person making bringing evidence against a defendant had to actually be at the court or the equivalent of being at the court so that the accused and the accused lawyer could confront that uh, evidence and uh, subject it to cross-examination. He just felt whether it benefited the defendant or not, he felt this is what the Constitution was intended, this is what the Bill of Rights, the, the, the Sixth Amendment, was intended to, to, to mean. That was, it was its original meaning. Before we move on to our next segment, we're going to just take a quick break, uh, hear a message from our sponsor. Stay with us, and we'll be back in just a few moments to talk more about uh, Justice Scalia. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No. With most cloud computing providers, moving your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And even if you have an existing legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio, Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O dot com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. This is Bob Ambrogi, and we're talking about uh, the career, life and career of Justice Antonin Scalia. And uh, I've now been joined by our co-host, Craig Williams, who wasn't available for the first part of the show. And uh, we're continuing our conversation with Tony Morrow, Supreme Court correspondent for the National Law Journal, and Kevin Martin at Goodwin Proctor, a former law clerk to Justice Scalia. I'm sure you all saw the article uh, that that Jeffrey Tubin wrote in in The New Yorker uh, that was uh, less than kind, I think, to to Antonin Scalia. He he opened it by saying uh, Antonin Scalia devoted his professional life to making the United States a less fair, less tolerant, and less admirable democracy, belligerent with his colleagues, dismissive of his critics, nostalgic for a world where outsiders knew their place and stayed there. Scalia represents a perfect model for everything that President Obama should avoid in a successor. I want to ask each of you, is that is that fair? Is that a fair assessment, Tony, Kevin? I'll, I'll start off. I think that's frankly ridiculous and obnoxious. Justice Scalia's approach to constitutional interpretation ultimately was a very democratic approach to constitutional interpretation. 
because on on so many issues, uh, and if you want to look at the issues uh, that that Jeffrey Tubin had had in mind, um, you know, let's, let's say abortion or um, you know same-sex marriage or you know sort of take your pick. Justice Scalia's ultimate view was that those should be left up to the people because the Constitution does not say anything about them. And when the, cost, when the relevant provisions in the Constitution were adopted, uh, the, the authors of those provisions did not understand themselves, and, and people reading it did not understand themselves, to be limiting the ability of future Democratic majorities to legislate on these issues. Uh, you know, if, if Mr. Tubin believes that America is an uglier place or would be an uglier place uh, based on some of Justice Scalia's decisions, he's really pointing a finger at, at Americans, um, at the American public, who uh, voted for laws on, on these subjects. And, and you know, ultimately, Scalia respected the, the democratic prerogatives of the people, and it's those who would turn the court into, into a sword uh, to strike down laws on, on all kinds of subjects, um, notwithstanding uh, that nobody who enacted the relevant constitutional provisions thought they were limiting uh, democratic rights of, of future majorities um, who are anti-democratic. And there's been much made of uh, Justice Scalia's relationship, a uh, very friendly relationship with Justice Ginsburg. What's your sense of that, Tony? And, and what's your sense of his relationship with the other justices on the on the bench? And how's that going to change now? Well, I think, uh, yes, it always, it always was remarkable that Justice Scalia's best friend on, on the court was Justice Ginsburg. They disagreed about almost everything in terms of... Uh, doctrine, but they were very close friends. And I think it does give you a hint that um, in some re- at least in some respects to Jeffrey Tubin's article is wrong. I mean, I think Justice Scalia was a, a, a gentleman, a courtly man, uh, uh, and a good friend to people. Uh, there were times, I would agree, that uh, he was a little bit over the top, and I think some of the some of the other justices would agree uh, that he really was could be quite brutal to the advocates. He could be very dismissive of his colleagues. He, you know, there was the, the decision, uh, the same-sex marriage decision. He said you know, about Justice Kennedy that, uh, you know, I would. I would put a bag over my head before agreeing to a decision like this. Uh, uh, and, um, you, you always wonder how how could these how could they look at each other the next day at work uh, after uh, Justice Scalia uh, unloaded his you know very vociferous views on his on his colleagues. Uh, and, and I think there there were some people who felt that Justice Scalia. He came on the court. Conservatives hoped that he would, because of his, he was such a brilliant person, that he he would bring a number of justices along and be a real uh, leader uh, on the court, forming majorities for his point of view. And I think that some of them were disappointed that over the years, Justice Scalia almost kind of gave up on that and just thought, I'd rather be a happy warrior and uh, make my points as uh, aggressively as I can, and I kind of gave up on the idea of building majorities. Uh, at least some people have, have felt that way. Uh, but certainly without him, uh, the, the court will be completely different. Uh, it, it's hard to 
hard to picture. It's already been hard to to watch opinion uh, uh, oral arguments as I have in the last week or so without him. Uh, it's it's like a a missing a missing wheel on a car or something. Uh, it, it, it'll be uh, hard to hard for the court to adjust. You know, for the first time, there was a there was a reference by uh, Clarence Thomas. Actually, a question from Clarence Thomas shortly after Justice Scalia's death. Uh, for the first time in ten years, do you attribute that to Scalia? <laughs> you know, it would be it would be funny if that were were the case, and and maybe it is. Um, but it it had been ten years, and it might have been just been time for another question. <laughs> Kevin, I'm just wondering from from your perspective of having worked with him, what you saw what 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 you saw is sort of Scalia the person. I mean, you've talked a lot about his his legal philosophy and and uh, you know where he stood on issues, but just from working with him uh, as a clerk, what was he like personally? Uh, sure. So so putting aside the the actual work with him, where uh, he did demand a very high level of of rigor. Um, he would say, you know, before oral argument, he would require you to prepare a two-page bench memo. Uh, it could only be two pages. You could fiddle with the margins a little bit. You might, you know, fiddle with the font size dump. Uh, but if it were more than two, you'd get in trouble. Uh, he would then have each of the um, clerks uh, discuss with him each of the cases. We'd, we'd all gather in his office. Um, the, the clerk who was principally responsible for the case would give a bit of a presentation and a recommendation. And then all the other clerks would have a chance to to weigh in and, and to, you know, push on on what the recommended outcome was. And then, of course, the justice himself would would weigh in. So it was, it was a very, you know, if, when you're in your your mid twenties and you're in that that atmosphere with a lot of other um, very smart people, it's just it's a great it's a great testing ground. Um, then when you're not working, he was he was somewhat I would say almost grandfatherly. Uh, he would take you to lunch. He'd he'd crack terrible jokes. Um, he was just a, he was he was he was a fun nice guy. It's, it's no surprise that you know Justice Ginsburg and many other people who disagreed with him on legal issues uh, nonetheless were his friend. Tony, you had one of the most entertaining, I think, pieces I read. Uh, if entertaining is the right word, is is your essay uh, in the National Law Journal uh, titled "When Scalia Turned My Name into an Adjective." Is there a short version of that you could relate for us? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. I'll, I'll I'll keep it short. But uh, uh, Justice Scalia, like most justices, didn't have much use for the reporters who covered the court. Uh, uh, unlike the other branches of government, they just don't justices don't feel like they have much need to interact with us, and that's fine. We're not supposed to be buddies, but. Uh, uh, there were there was one case where instance where he really got upset with something I wrote, um, an article about uh, him sort of informally lobbying for uh, in effect higher salary for justices, uh, and he had nine nine children to put through college, so it seemed uh, like he was uh, talking to a number of members of Congress about this, and he. Uh, wrote a letter to the editor of uh, Legal Times, which was the precursor of the National Law Journal, or a, an earlier, or they, they were merged. And uh, he wrote a letter to the editor uh, claiming that the story I had written was gossipy and titillating and therefore characteristically moronic. And he spelled moronic M A U R O N I C, which is uh, my name, is my last name is spelled M A U R O. So I became an adjective. Uh, and <laughs> was there Washington, something about his beard as well? You had made reference to his beard, or 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was another thing. I, I, he, he, for one term, he actually grew a beard over the summer and came to court, and everybody was just surprised to see him that way. And I, I kind of tongue in cheek said that people were debating whether he looked more like Pavarotti or uh, Dom DeLuise, and uh, <laughs> I think he didn't like that one either. But uh, uh, so we had kind of a uh, a mixed bag relationship. Uh, finally. In recent years, he uh, he was uh, very. He became you know friendly, but certainly we uh, shook hands once, and uh, uh, I was no longer an adjective. What do you think, Kevin? What what what's Justice Scalia's legacy as we as we leave the Supreme Court issue uh, and move on to a new justice coming in? What what do we take away from Justice Scalia's time on the bench? I think the the one thing to take away from from his time on the bench is that you you can approach constitutional interpretation in a way that is divorced from your own political views. Uh, as we were talking about earlier, there are many cases in which Justice Scalia um, came to results in cases uh, where that his own personal uh, political views may not have led him to. And so I think he he serves as a as a good model for the the neutral judge. Uh, who you know, calls calls balls and strikes and doesn't necessarily try to uh, come to the the outcome that he wants. There was news today of a, a letter sent to the president uh, and uh, the Senate regarding uh, from a number of uh, corporate counsel uh, and uh, in-house lawyers calling for uh, the vacancy to be filled promptly. Uh, Kevin, do you have a perspective on that? Uh, do you feel that uh, this should wait for the next, for until after the election, or should the Senate act on this as soon as possible? You know, I, I, I think it would be great if they could, if they could find a consensus candidate to, to fill the spot. I, I'm not sure that's that's remotely possible. And but while it would be ideal for that to happen, I guess on the other the other side, I'm not that concerned if it doesn't. And for this reason, the, the court has a discretionary docket. You know, sometimes issues percolate in the lower court uh, for years before they get up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And so where it's now already March and the court will stop hearing cases uh, in just a, a month or two uh, and then take a long summer recess, you know, wait, waiting until the middle of next term uh, to have another, another justice appointed. You know, it's, again, not, not ideal, but if, if cases have to, if certain issues have to stay in the circuit courts and the state Supreme Courts, for another cycle, uh, it's not the end of the world jurisprudentially. I, I would, uh, I would say, yeah, it's not the end of the world, uh, but certainly, it's just a lot of things, big and small, are there are a lot of consequences of an eight-member court that really are will be slowing things down over time. And I think, it, well, some people have speculated or wondered. What would Justice Scalia think about all this? Would he read the Constitution to require or at least encourage a president to make a, a nomination, even on a lame duck status? Uh, I, I think he probably would agree that's the way to go. Uh, and I, I think that's uh, that's really the concept that the, the, uh, the framers of the Constitution had about Supreme Court appointments. Uh, and so for the court to go an entire year or it could be well could be more than a year really uh without a ninth justice um i i think is uh is 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 damaging to the court's 
image and to into the stability the stability of the law. But yes, not the end of the world. Yeah, I think it's actually too bad in some ways um, because, again, going back to Justice Scalia's uh, fundamental philosophy that that many issues should be left to to democratic processes and, and fewer issues should be const- constitutionalized and federalized. Um, he's probably the last person in the world who would want the replacement of a single justice to, to matter so to matter so much. Um, nonetheless, he, he's the one who who passed away in the middle of the term. And therefore, we find ourselves in this situation. I, I think we're we're very near the end of our time. But Craig, I know you joined late. Did, did you have anything else that you wanted to ask before we wrap up? Yeah, I was going to ask Kevin and Tony, just as a follow-up to the question or the responses about the nomination, what you'd be saying to Congress at this point about nominating a justice for the Supreme Court. I mean, Kevin, I, I know you mentioned that you, it's it's necessary and it's damaging to the court, but what political message needs to get to the Congress in order for an appointment to be made during this lame duck presidency? Uh, you know, I, I guess I would say to Congress, you know, vote how you want. Uh, the Constitution itself places uh, no time limits on how long a nomination can be pending. Uh, so if, if President Obama puts up somebody who is a, is a consensus candidate, given that there's a Republican-controlled Senate, uh, then, you know, they should they should strongly consider that person. Um, if, however, President Obama uh, nominates somebody who uh, seems like they're more of a political statement um, or whose, whose views are, are not acceptable to a Republican-controlled Senate, then they're within their rights, um, as, as, for example, happened with Robert Bork, uh, to, to say no to that person and send uh, the president back to the drawing board. That may wind up running out the, the clock, um, but that, that's sort of the, the nature of the advice and consent process. I guess I would say just that, uh, you know, ideally it would be great if it could be as unpolitical a process as possible, uh, but uh, that's almost impossible. We're right in the crucible of the election campaign, uh, a very heated one, and uh, there's so many things that depend on who is nominated uh, and who's confirmed. We're in a real we're in a real pickle right now, and uh, uh, if, if it can be done as uh, as uh, harmoniously as possible, it would be great. But I'm not too optimistic. All right. Well, we are at uh, just about at the end of our time uh, for the show today. Before we wrap up, we would like to give each of you an opportunity to give us your kind of final thoughts on Justice Scalia uh, and his career, and then uh, also let our listeners know how they can follow up uh, with you if if they'd like to do that. Uh, Tony Morrow, let's start with you. Well, it, uh, as as mentioned, we, he had kind of a mixed uh, uh, relationship with him, but. Uh, but he, I, I think he uh, had the uh, love of the law and respect for the law was what animated him, and uh, I think he'll be long remembered uh, uh, as one of the most influential um, justices in history. Maybe not in, in the quantity of of the pivotal decisions he he uh, wrote but in terms of uh originalism the approach to uh to judging uh, he, uh he's had a tremendous impact thanks and you're i know our listeners can find you at the national law journal is there uh oh yes uh, uh we you can find my articles uh unfortunately sometimes behind uh 
registration wall, but it's at nationallawjournal.com, and uh, uh, my email is uh, tmaro, that's T-M-A-U-R-O, at alm.com. Thanks a lot. And Kevin Martin, your final thoughts? You know, uh, Justice Scalia was appointed to the Supreme Court when I was in junior high school, and so to, to my memory, he's, he was always there and was very uh, his views were very formative of my own as I was coming up uh, as a young man and, and through law school and then obviously uh, clerking for him. Uh, he, he was, as Tony said, a, a giant, and he'll very much be missed. Uh, and you can find me uh, at goodwinproctor.com uh, where I practice. I also uh, publish uh, occasionally on constitutional and political issues at newbostonpost.com. You can find my articles there. Thanks to both of you for taking the time to be with us today. We really appreciate it. Tony Morrow from the National Law Journal and Kevin Martin, former clerk to Justice Scalia and partner at Goodwin Proctor in Boston. Thank you. Well, thank you for having us. Great. And that brings us to the end of our show. I'm Craig Williams with Bob Ambrosi. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer. Produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi for their next podcast covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.